You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Two plus two equals human sacrifice. You have been awake since before dawn. You couldn't sleep, even though you know your groom will want you to be well-rested for the wedding night. He will want you to be a vision with bright eyes and not a yawning child who cannot keep her eyes open. But you could not sleep. This is the very first day of your new life. And sleep is something for children. Come tonight, you will be a wife. A woman grown. And not just any wife. His wife. All the serving maids have spoken about him. The rumors have reached all corners of Greece. He is the most handsome of all the Greeks. Tall and lean, and thank the gods, young. You had always feared your father would marry you off to some stuffy old man twice your age for a better rate on trade or ships or to stop a war. But no, your father has called you to be a wife at the start of a war. A war started because your aunt the most beautiful woman to ever walk the earth, was kidnapped. She was taken from her home by the Trojan prince, who you've been told was very easy on the eyes and much easier in the bedroom. You laughed with the other women, even if you didn't quite understand what they meant. It felt right to be a part of this joke, if only because you've seen your uncle Menelaus, and it would not take a very handsome man to turn your head if you were his wife with his great red beard and bald head and gut that is starting to strain his tunic. When you left your home, your hands shook as you pulled each of your sisters into tight hugs. They are so little. Their time will come, but yours is first. You are leaving them now, maybe forever, to join your husband. Will he bring you with him to war, or will you spend your days in Pythia, a land you do not know, making small talk with his father, a king you've never met? Your mother sits beside you in the cart as you travel to Alice to meet your future. Her face is wide and filled with joy. When she heard you were to wed Achilles, she wept. She told you that he was destined to be a great man, to do many great deeds. The gods favored him. And now they will favor you too. Your mother is not as beautiful as your aunt, but when she smiles, she puts Helen to shame. 
She has been all smiles the past two days, preparing your dowry, your wedding dress, making plans with your maids to ensure that you will meet your husband looking your best. You reach out and take her hand. You are not scared, but you are not quite ready to leave her either. My beautiful girl, she says, her voice catching as she looks at you. I am sad that this day has come so soon, but I am happy for you. It will be a long and happy marriage. It is a good match. And who knows? Maybe your husband will prefer you remain with family in Mycenae while he is off at war. She squeezes your hand. Maybe we'll get to keep you for a little while longer. You want to tell her that you are a woman and that your place is by your husband's side. But you cannot bring yourself to say the words. Instead, you sit in silence as the great war camp comes into view. It's the strangest thing. But as soon as your cart moves over the beach, as soon as the wheels touch the sand, you feel it. The heat. It is oppressive. There is no wind, no breeze, no relief. This time of year, there should be a breeze. It should be pleasant. A beautiful day for a wedding. Instead, you can feel the heat beginning to wilt your curls. Your veil sticks to your face and you want to claw it off. But you don't. You see the men rushing to and fro on the beach, their weapons polished and gleaming in the sun. You look for him, hoping to catch sight of him in his armor with his bright blonde hair. But you don't see him. When your cart stops, it is a broad, barrel-chested man who greets you. He is neither handsome nor young. He could be any age between 25 and your father's age. He is not your groom. He has dark eyes and a face that reminds you of a fox, all cunning, a creature you cannot trust alone with your rabbits. Welcome, Princess Iphigenia. I've come to take you to your tent. I'm Odysseus, King of Ithaca. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, we looked at Achilles' early life and his relationship with the women who crossed his path, mainly Thetis, his mother, and Didymea, his first female love interest, whom he rapes and impregnates. Sometimes they're married, sometimes they're not. She usually, I believe, she bears him at least one child. These relationships were fraught with anxiety, secrecy, trauma, and violence. In short, Achilles did not have great relationships with women already, before he even gets to war. And he continued that pattern throughout his life. In this episode, we're going to look at what happened when Achilles leaves behind his childhood and goes to war. Achilles' journey to the beach at Alice, as we mentioned last week, was a long time in the making. Alice was a port town located in central Greece in Boeotia. Which is weird because Boeotia did not have a lot of ports. It is a port. Like, I've looked it up on a map. It's a weird place for everyone to meet. But essentially, because it was centrally located, it was kind of a good place for all the princes and kings from all of Greece to meet up and prepare for war. It's also an easier, I guess, hop skip across to Troy. Yeah, looking at the map, it's like this one strip of Boeotia that's on the um, eastern side facing Troy, which is over in modern day Turkey. Am I right on that? Because it's centrally located... It was a good place for all the princes and kings from all of Greece to meet up and prepare for war. And it quickly filled up with, you know, the thousand ships and its beach became littered with the detritus of war, tents and campfires and men and animals and weapons and armor and camp followers and all that kind of stuff. 
And trash and food and trash and poop. Stop at the poop. They obviously dug the trains. God. Well, I'm sure that it just went into the sea, Jen. They would have had to dig some kind of ditch latrine because you can't just poop in the sea. Like, that's not how that works. Oh, you can. Ask all the fish. Okay, the fish can poop in the sea, but like human feces in the sea, it's not ideal. They would have dug a trench, like a latrine. And also like the animals. The animals were pooping everywhere. They would have like horses and pack animals and cows. And I'm just going to stop you because we're still in the intro and remind you of what Kate the Explorer said about like, essentially, these were like sandboxes, right? They would have just pulled up the poo and buried it somewhere else like you do with your cats. The whole beach had become a litter box. Thank you, Jen. Anyway, this beach was teeming with men and violence, and it was a sweaty, poopy powder keg ready for a match. The Greek fleet was waiting at the beach for Achilles to show up because they had been told that they could not win the war without him. So the fact that he rocked up later than most of the other soldiers and just kept everybody waiting was suboptimal. It was not ideal. Everyone who was anyone, and anyone who was alive at this point in time in Greek mythology, was there. Agamemnon, Menelaus, Odysseus, both Ajaxes, there were two, Diomedes. They were all very worthy and important. (laughs) If you want a complete list of who's at the beach, we refer you to the Iliad. Anyway, all of these men and their war bands and their ships and their armies and their armor and their animals and their poop had been waiting, not so patiently, for Achilles to arrive. Rumors of where Achilles had been and what he'd been up to before he arrived at Aulis were already circulating. Achilles was getting a reputation. And not necessarily one that he particularly wanted people to hear about. Achilles might wish that nobody had heard about his time at Skyros as a dancing girl, but stories were already circulating. Stories that Achilles had no control over. His honor was being besmirched. I really do feel like besmirched is a great word. It really is. It was one of those words that as I was writing this, I was like, nobody uses this word. Achilles would use this word. I think we're going to work it into conversation as much as possible. Get ready. Yeah. And talking about people who had their honors besmirched, Jenny, doesn't this feel an awful lot like Julius Caesar in his younger years when he came back from Bithynia? It sure does, Jen. I'm getting flashbacks right now. Right? All those rumors that surrounded Caesar's return about how he'd had a lavish affair with the king of Bithynia and how Caesar was the queen of Bithynia now. Why was that, Jenny? It was because Caesar was said to be the submissive partner, the quote-unquote feminine one in sex, the one who took the passive role, the bottom, if you know what I mean. Look, that could be quite enjoyable, I'm not gonna lie, but... I don't think he liked people thinking that about him. (laughs) Whatever was going on with Caesar, this could have been like an Erastes Romanus relationship because Caesar was pretty young at the time. He was 19, I believe, and I think we'd gamed up the math and the king of Bithynia would have been in his maybe 50s. I forget, but he would have been quite a lot older. He would have been. So again, Erastes Romanus. There's a lot of zaddying going on here. Yeah, our theory at the time was the king of Bithynia was like Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Which was mostly the problem was that he was overage. But as I'm going to say throughout this episode, and as I've said throughout this series, as long as it's consensual and everyone is happy, it's none of our business who's doing what. Well, tell that to ancient Greeks and Romans, Jen. They want to know what is going on in your bedroom at all times. (laughs) Do you know why? It's because I think they were just not really able to figure out what the hell was going on in their own bedrooms. So these rumors really messed Caesar up because they threatened his masculinity. And they kind of, you know, he he really struggled to deal with this. And the same here is true for Achilles. The rumors about what he'd done in Skyros 
how it had taken Odysseus and Diomedes to shame him into coming to war, they were seriously messing up his credibility. Yeah, and it wasn't just that he dressed as a girl. It was that he dressed as a girl to hide from war. That was like the double whammy. It was a total, total double whammy. And, you know, you can only say my mommy made me do it so many times before people are like, either you're just a total mommy's boy or I don't know. I don't think that that actually helps him. (laughs) And I think he did realize that pretty quickly. Like, you just can't, you have to own all your, your things in a warrior culture. You do. You just have to go around... You know, challenging people to duels if you don't like what they're saying about you and then hope that you win. If you win enough of those duels. With your dick out. Your dick has got to be out all the time. You know, that's actually true in Celtic warrior culture because there's all these like statues and like chalk carvings and stuff of people with their dicks out. I mean, the reality is all their exercise and things like that would have been done naked. So the dicks were out a lot. Anyway, can I please get back to this beach? You're the one fixating on the dicks being out. I'm ready to move on. Go ahead. (laughs) So Achilles, at this point in time, was young. As we've said before, he's maybe in his very early 20s or his late teens or even his mid-teens. He was not a seasoned warrior. He's never been to war. If he had seen any combat, which would be doubtful, it would have been small skirmishes or maybe some mock bouts. In short, he was a noob, and he had a lot of hang-ups about this. And you can't blame him in some ways. He was just a kid or, you know, a young adult. But the oracle, the prophets, the gods, everyone had decreed he would be the greatest Greek warrior, the best of the Greeks. It was his fate. As much as it's exactly what a stroppy teen always wants to hear, that he's the chosen one, I mean, this is why we all get into fantasy in our teens, it's also a monumental amount of pressure. Jenny, I honestly don't think I could have handled that level of pressure in my late teens or early 20s because... I was just, like, getting used to having, like, my boobs. Jen was just getting used to having boobs, you guys. (laughs) I I was definitely, like, a, you know, a late bloomer. Anyway, and I was also, like, getting used to living away from home and being an independent person and not spending my entire paycheck on pretty stupid things like booze and bracelets or rent. I mean, let's be honest. I was... And always have been kind of stupidly responsible about paying my rent. Well, rent isn't stupid. Rent's just like a normal expense. I know, but it feels stupid. Well, that's fair. I've spent unholy amounts on, like, takeout and nail polish before, so no judgment here. Anyway, it was also Achilles' fate to die very young, away from his homeland. This was part of all those prophecies from the beginning. So he knew about it even as a kid. And that was another thing that he had to contend with. The Greeks couldn't win without him, but going to Troy meant he would die away from everyone he'd ever known and loved, fighting in a war he didn't necessarily believe in. I feel like that's the kind of thing, like, as a kid, you might not think about that too hard, but, like, as you get older, it becomes a lot more real. Well, that's the thing, right? He's maybe not thinking about this, like, at this point in time, but this is what he's been told. Like, they can't win without you, but also, when you do this, you're never going to come home again. So anyway, Achilles was basically making the decision to die for a war he didn't necessarily believe in. This was a war all about another man being cuckolded, essentially. Unless, of course, Jenny, he did believe in this, right? This was a war all about another man's honor, Menelaus's honor. If Achilles believed that one man's honor was worth dying for, even if it wasn't his own honor, then that justified his death in this whole war, right? Like, it's twisted and warped, but... I guess? I mean... It's warped, but if you believe that strongly in honor and in male honor, I guess so. Like, if you believe that strongly that women not choosing to have sex with you, like, besmirches your honor. But 
If Achilles didn't believe in that, then he was just going to war to fight and die and win glory. And was that really worth his life? It was a big and complicated thing for a young warrior to contend with. Either he was all in on the honor being worth dying for, any man's honor, doesn't matter whose, or he's dying young and glorious in battle for its own sake, and is that worth it? I mean, I am not a teenager, but that is fucking with my brain. Dying for somebody else's honor, dying for my own honor even, just sounds like uh, not a thing I would necessarily sign up for. Well, yeah, and I think, like, let's be honest, it's a bit of a luxury and a privilege to be the kind of person who can worry about that, right? Like, you know, Achilles has this luxury of being an epic warrior with big thoughts. Well, counterpoint. In the warrior culture, your honor, your reputation, basically fights your battles ahead of you. There was not law enforcement. Anybody could enact violence on anyone else, and the only thing holding you back is how much violence might come back to you in retaliation, right? So if you have the most badass reputation, fewer people are going to challenge you, unless there are people who want to challenge you for their own reputation, which I guess is its own risk. But like, your honor is what goes ahead of you and fights your battles for you. So if you don't have good honor, then people are just going to stomp all over you and no one's going to stop it. They're just going to take what you have and leave you destitute or dead or whatever you know like it's 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 a real dog eat dog world eat dog eat dog world out there so many dogs all the eating being done was that you the eat dog eat dog like somebody we know made that joke and it killed me but it was years ago i regret that i am but one person who did not make that joke (laughs) somebody in my past was trying to say dog eat dog and they said eat dog eat dog and and now it's my gift to you all it's an eat dog eat dog world (laughs) I hope whoever that was, and I'm sorry I'm not remembering at the moment, listens to this and texts me. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? 
Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Anyway, Achilles arrived at Aulis with Patroclus at his side, and he was leading the elite fighters, the Myrmidons. And the Myrmidons are fascinating. There are a bunch of myths associated with them, which we're not going to go into here. We're going to do a Patreon episode on them, so if you really want to learn more about the mythical origins of the Myrmidons, make sure you sign up to our Patreon at at least the $5 level, because I think it's probably going to be at that level. So, anyway... Back to Achilles. Achilles was the leader of the Myrmidons. It's not exactly a position he'd earned yet. It's one he had by birth. As Prince of Pythia, the Myrmidons were his to command. And the Myrmidons, whose name means ant, there's a whole thing about why that is, but I'm not talking about it now, I refuse. They were fierce. They dressed in all brown like ants. They moved as one unit like ants. And like ants, they were able to do impossible and incredible feats. In short, they were an ancient world elite shock force, and they were commanded by essentially a teenager slash 20-something, a boy who had just spent the last few years living as a girl instead of honing his prowess fighting and studying and learning to command his soldiers and learning the art of war. It was potentially an uneasy arrangement because the Myrmidons had to accept him as their leader, right? Essentially, the Myrmidons served the king of Pythia, and Achilles was the person fighting as the ruler of Pythia, but he had also run away to Skyros, so it's not the easiest sort of role he's stepping into here, right? Like, these are the elite shock troop guys, but your leader was also just hanging out with the ladies for, like, at least 18 months. I don't see anything wrong with that, but I could see why... They would be like, well, you know, something, something masculinity and manhood, you know, that tends to be important to dudes for some reason. However, Achilles had good advisors, including Patroclus. His first days and weeks at Alice might have been uneasy while rumors swirled and he found his footing. But the Myrmidons seemed to have accepted Achilles' leadership. But there was another problem. The Greek fleet couldn't go to war yet because there was no wind. The sea was flat, and it was too long of a journey to row. This wind problem was a big deal. Everyone was in a shitty mood. These aggressive warlike types were all getting restless and agitated, and they were starting to look for someone to blame. The consensus was starting to fall on one person, Agamemnon. Agamemnon was the self-styled leader of all the Greek forces. He liked to call himself the King of Kings. His leadership was not that secure, because all the other men at arms came from different areas where they were princes or kings, and taking commands from Agamemnon, who was extremely pompous, was grating to say the least. All the other kings and princes and warlords were already primed to dislike this guy and to challenge his leadership. And the fact was, the lack of wind was kind of Agamemnon's fault. At a certain point, probably before Achilles showed up, all the guys went hunting. This hunting trip might have had a practical purpose in that they needed food, but we get the feeling that Agamemnon participated as a way to flex his ruler muscles, like, you know, as a way to up his standing amongst the men. So, while on this trip, Agamemnon boasted that he was a better hunter than Artemis, the goddess of the wild and the hunt. He killed a stag, and suddenly the wind completely died down. 
Artemis was pissed at Agamemnon. He killed a stag, one of her sacred creatures, but that was just the tip of the iceberg because he'd also claimed to be a better hunter than her. That kind of hubris, that complete disregard for her, could not go unpunished. Honor was at stake. And Artemis is not a goddess that you want to besmirch, shall we say. She turned her lover Callisto into a bear when Zeus disguised himself as Artemis and raped her. She had Acteon turned into a stag and devoured by his own hunting dogs because he spied on her naked. I mean, that is reasonable. Her temper was legendary. So, what possessed Agamemnon to claim to be the better hunter? Who knows? I'm guessing toxic masculinity and the need to show off in front of his men because toxic masculinity. Anyway, the damage was clearly done here. The wind would not return until Artemis was appeased. Now, the source we're going to use here for this part of the episode and Achilles' story is Iphigenia and Alice by Euripides. Euripides was a tragedian who lived from 480 to 406 BC. He wrote a lot of plays for the city Dionysia festival. They were performed in Athens. And this play that we're talking about was written between 408 and 406 BC, and it was performed after Euripides' death. It is his only play, along with the Bacchae and Alcmaeon in Corinth, because these were performed as a trilogy, to ever win the city Dionysia, and it was, as you can tell, posthumous. Iphigenia in Alice is a great source to show us what Achilles was going through during that brief time at Alice. It really sets up the conflict between Achilles and Agamemnon later in the Iliad. And I just think one of, the, one of the gifts that Euripides gives us is so much deep insight into different characters in a way that I just have always kind of fallen in love with. Um, so that's why I use this source. Is this story told in other places? Sure. So Agamemnon asked the priests and seers what he needed to do to appease the goddess. The answer came back pretty quickly. Sacrifice your daughter, Iphigenia, to Artemis. Once he did that, the winds would return and they'd be able to sail to Troy in safety. And Agamemnon completely agreed with his plan. He, he's like, yep, sure, absolutely. I am not even overthinking this. So he called for his wife, Clytemnestra, and his daughter, Iphigenia, to be brought to Aulis. And he kind of had to trick them into it. He told them that Iphigenia was to be married to the greatest Greek warrior, Achilles. He basically used Achilles' bait. His wife and daughter were so excited. This was a great match. It was a wonderful, joyous occasion. They headed to Alice and got all prepped for a wedding. But Achilles didn't know anything about this wedding. He was deliberately kept in the dark. It was only when he happened to run into Clytemnestra that he found out that there was going to be a wedding. His wedding. And who was he supposed to be marrying? Aga fucking Memnon's daughter. You can imagine just how thrilled he was at this news. So, while Clytemnestra was telling Achilles the happy news, no doubt his reaction was very bewildering, some random guy strolled up and was like, Psst! I have to let you in on a secret. This wedding, you are both kind of surprised and or pissed at? It's a ruse! Plot twist! Everything, this whole setup, is a cunning plan by Agamemnon to get Clytemnestra and Iphigenia to come to Alice. Why, you ask? Uh, let's not get into too many details, but something about needing a wind, and maybe he pissed off a goddess, and, you know, why don't you ask your husband about the human sacrifice? But while you're asking him, don't let your daughter out of your sight or anywhere near her dad. We cool? So, Achilles.
Achilles and Clytemnestra immediately put two and two together. There is no wind. Somebody, Agamemnon, pissed off a goddess. Somebody literally said the words human sacrifice. Two plus two equals human sacrifice. (laughs) That's how math works. (laughs) It is on this beach. Clytemnestra was shocked and appalled that her husband had lied to her to get her to bring her daughter here to be sacrificed. And Achilles was mad too. Not about this poor girl about to be killed, but that Agamemnon had used his name in this ruse without asking him first. Achilles promised Clytemnestra that he would protect her and her daughter because honor is at stake. Honor is at stake. That's right, Cucullin. Cucullin does it so much better than me because his voice is so much lower and it's so much, so much honorier. So much honor and so deeply sexy. Yeah, it kind of is. It's weird. But the reality was that his honor had been besmirched. And Euripides really breaks this down in an epic rant from Achilles. It's long, but honestly, every word is worth listening to. Every word is precious, precious gold. And Jen insisted on including it, so we're going to read it. I did because you were tempted several times in this speech to be like, oh, Achilles. And then he just opens his mouth and says more. And you're like, oh, Achilles. Quote, here's what Achilles says. Quote, I am here, madam, as I will be in Troy also to defend with my shield and with my spear, my honor as a man. So you think he's going to say her, but no. My honor as a man and do my best to glorify the god of war, Ares. You have been wronged, madam. Most treacherously wronged by your closest friends. Let my pity be a protective blanket over you. It is the pity of a young man, but it is a sincere pity, nevertheless, and one brought about by the fact that I... It is a pity, a pity, a pity. I'm sorry. I have been the one named as your daughter's husband. Believe me, madam, Agamemnon will not slaughter her. I will never permit your husband to perform such treacherous deeds. It is my name that he will be using as his sword to slaughter Iphigenia, and this awful man will disgrace my body if I let your daughter, who is about to marry me and who has suffered this insufferable fate, die because of me. To let this man succeed in this deed, to let him use my name as his bloody sword, would be to make me the worst of all the Greeks, a worthless man, one more cowardly than Menelaus, as if I were not the son of Peleus, but that of some evil demon, by my grandfather, my mother's father, Nereus, who was nurtured by the ocean waves. Agamemnon shall never lay a finger on your daughter, not even to touch her robes, or else we might as well call Mount Sipolis the Asian city where his barbarous ancestors came from, a great city, and wipe out of our mind the name of Pythia. When our esteemed prophet, Calchas, conducts his next sacrifice, when he will mingle his barley and his holy water upon the altar, he will pay bitterly for it. A prophet? Ha! What is a prophet? A teller of truth one time, and a teller of lies one thousand times, if he's lucky. And then, if his prophecies are found to be false, he vanishes. I'm not talking like this because I'm missing out on this wedding. Oh, no. There are hundreds of women who want my wedding bed. I'm angry because King Agamemnon has insulted me so gravely. He has used my name without my permission. He has used it to lure and snare his daughter and to convince Clytemnestra to bring her here to me to be presented as my wife. In fact, had he asked me for my permission to use my name for this, I would have given it. I would have given it if the Greeks couldn't get to Troy without my doing so. I would have given it to serve the greater good of our soldiers. I would have given it for the sake of my fellow soldiers. But now, now that Agamemnon has insulted me, 
dishonored me so badly, I feel like a, like a nobody. It seems that the generals do as they please with me. Whether they treat me well or appallingly makes no difference to them. <laughs> Achilles has a big ego, kids. Oh my god. So let's just be very clear. Achilles would be utterly fine with Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter using his name as long as he had asked Achilles first. Yeah. So the thing is, Achilles is, as we can see from all of the eyes, he's not really upset about the human sacrifice of it all, which, I mean, would be what would upset me. But he's upset that, like, Agamemnon went behind his back and did this and didn't include him in the murder plot. It's all about him, really. (laughs) It's always all about him. And that's the thing about Achilles. Like, you want sometimes to be like, he says, I'm going to defend her. I'm going to defend this girl who's been brought here to be sacrificed. But he's not doing it for the reasons you'd expect, which is like, she's a young girl who's been lured here under false pretenses. And you know, shouldn't be sacrificed for a favorable win. He's like, no, 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 I'd kill her myself for the wind. It's because no one asked my permission to use my name or include me in the ruse. That's why I'm on your side. Like, what? My favorite part of this is the part where he says, look, it's not that I'm upset that I won't be marrying her because let's be clear, everybody wants to marry me. I mean, look, I have no, I have no lack of offers over here. Like, oh, everyone was super worried about how you were going to feel about that, Achilles. It's one of the things, I mean, I've made no secret. I've done the research for these episodes. I am like an unapologetic, like, I really want to love Achilles so much. But the more I dug into it, it's like the only redeeming thing about you is Patroclus. (laughs) And he's not you, so. (laughs) And he's not you. I don't know what he sees in you. You know, Achilles, if he looks like Brad Pitt, I'm a shallow, shallow girl, Jen. I'm a shallow girl, but if you guys have been watching our Instagram and you saw the picture of Patroclus's back muscles that I put up. Anyway, let's break this down. Achilles meets up with Clytemnestra, who tells him that he's supposed to marry Iphigenia. And he's shocked, but again, not for the reasons he should be shocked. He tells Clytemnestra that he's not necessarily upset that he's not marrying her daughter. Hundreds of women want to marry him. Don't worry, he'll always have options. Yeah, that's the top of Clytemnestra's mind right then, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. When she hears that her daughter has been lured here to this camp filled with men who want a good wind to go waging war and pillaging, that's the first thing she's worried about. Phew, Achilles has other options, thank God. (laughs) Thank goodness, but... Achilles is very upset about this because of the principle of the thing, right? Agamemnon used his name without his permission. If he'd asked, Achilles would have been down with Agamemnon using his name to lure Iphigenia and Clytemnestra to Aulis. I mean, he probably would have sacrificed Iphigenia himself if that's what it took to get the army safely over to Troy to fight in glorious battle. Smooth, Achilles. This is just so smooth. Again, remember that Achilles is saying all this toxic shit to the mother of a girl who thought she was going to get married, who's now about to be sacrificed by her own father. For a good wind. Achilles goes on to say, don't worry. I won't let anything happen to your daughter. I will fuck up Agamemnon. I can do that. I'm Achilles. I will make him pay for what he's attempted to do. Not because, you know, human sacrifice for an unjust war is wrong. No, no, because it's all about me and my honor. 
So yeah, Clytemnestra, I'm your guy. I'll protect you. I'll protect your daughter. I'll do it for my honor. That good by you? Cool. And what can Clytemnestra say here? What could anyone say to that? As a woman, it's the best she can hope for, that a man will act as a protector, particularly when that man is going against her husband and the leader of the Greek allied forces. Not because it's the right thing to do, which she would hope would be his reasoning, but because his honor is at stake. I mean, I do kind of feel like she might not even care about his reason at this point. She's just like, fine, whatever, just fucking fix it. Essentially, look, for us as a modern audience, it's not a good look for Achilles. But for Clytemnestra, this dude is her only hope, and she is clinging to that. So while it feels like Achilles is doing the right thing here, it's for all the wrong reasons. And I do kind of feel like this is a good sum up of his character. It's like, you know, maybe... 10% of the time he does the right thing, but it's always for the wrong reasons. He agrees to intervene on behalf of the women because Agamemnon has slighted him, and it's all about him. And this slight, coming so soon after the rumors of what he got up to in Skyros, dressing as a dancing girl for two years, hiding from his destiny, means that he really has a reputation to defend. He already feels like his masculinity, his honor, are in question. And he's got a big force of Myrmidons who have to keep agreeing to follow him, and he's supposed to be the savior of this war. He's the chosen one. It's a lot. This is why he may have been so sensitive about his name and his honor. He already is off on the wrong foot here. And if Agamemnon and all the other Greek kings and princes think they can use him for their own plots and schemes without even consulting him, well, that means he's a nobody. There's nothing worse to him than being a nobody, being a nameless, faceless body to be thrown into the fray. He is Achilles. He is a man. Their reputation a lot of the time is their their currency. So I could see that that is important in the warrior culture. But anyway, he is Achilles. He is a man. He is the best of the Greeks, and he will do whatever he has to do to make sure that everyone knows that. Even if it means going against Agamemnon and protecting a girl from being slaughtered for a favorable win that they need to get to Troy. Not because he does not want to go to Troy and fight. No, he is down for that war. He's down for the sacri- whatever you have to do. But because no one let him know about the plan first. Nobody consulted him. And to be clear, if Agamemnon had just asked him first, he would have been fine with this whole murdering Iphigenia for a wind thing. He would have been fine with it. That's not the problem here. The murder is not the problem. It is just not asking first before you use my name as a ruse. That's the only thing. So again, as I've said before, there are times when you almost want to love Achilles. This is not one of them. (laughs) This is not one of them. You know, on the surface, he promises to protect a young girl and her mother. He promises to do the right thing. But it's for all the wrong reasons. It's to protect his fragile masculinity. And that's kind of the major problem with him as a character. And it's why you can love him and hate him at the same time. He's so fragile. He's this epic warrior who isn't quite comfortable in his skin and not comfortable with his own gender. He constantly feels like he has to prove himself. And in a way, he does have to prove himself. If Agamemnon really trusted him and believed in him as a warrior, wouldn't he have let Achilles in on the plan? Of course. But from Agamemnon's point of view, Achilles is a wild card. He's prone to getting really upset over little slights or what Agamemnon considers to be a little slight. Who the hell knows what Achilles is going to do? As the play goes on, Achilles tells Iphigenia that he will protect her from her father. 
he kind of starts to care for the girl. But the goddess Artemis must be appeased. Agamemnon appeals to his daughter, who agrees to be sacrificed for that good, good wind. Achilles sees her firm resolve and falls deeply in love with her. But in the end, Iphigenia goes bravely to her death, and Achilles doesn't stop it, because that's Iphigenia's wishes. But his resentment towards Agamemnon starts to build. I mean, he does turn out to be utterly useless in this whole thing. Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? He has no power here. Iphigenia is like, no, sweetie, I got this. And he's like, I love you so much. Like, what kind of wife would you be? He's like, this is the future I've now been robbed of. It's all about me still. It's all dark. Anyway, that is the beginning of their epic conflict. It's a story that sometimes gets left out of the Trojan War cycle. It doesn't paint either Achilles or Agamemnon in the best light, but it is important. It gives so much more meaning to what happens next. And it's important before we move on to the central conflict of the Iliad, which is at heart a fight over a woman who was a spoil of war, that we unpack what's going on here between Achilles and Agamemnon. This conflict, and this episode really, is all about toxic masculinity in a sense, and how the two most toxically masculine characters clash in this epic story. So first, let's look at the binary we understand, the one we've spent so much time establishing. We've talked about the binary of the impenetrable penetrators across lots of episodes. When Achilles arrives on the beach in Alice, there are rumors about his gender and essentially about his manhood. The men around him are kind of questioning his gender, his sexuality, because of these rumors, maybe because of the way he presents, and because outside of warfare, the impenetrable penetrator is the binary. It's a mark of your gender, of your manhood, if you're essentially the top or the bottom in sex. That was really important to them. And we've talked about whether this was a newer binary that applied to classical Greece or whether it, you know, whether it applied to the archaic Greeks at all. We, we're not sure. This is all really fuzzy. But the other possibility here is that the impenetrable penetrator binary did exist in archaic Greece, but it did tend to break down during war. So that's another thing we're going to talk about. Exactly. So Achilles has arrived on the beach with rumors swirling that he's been living as a girl. He looks kind of feminine still. He's young. He's attractive. He's a bit gender fluid or maybe feminine presenting. And this might be a mark of his semi-divinity. Like, he doesn't look like the other guys. But it could also have had the effect of others around him questioning his manhood as they understood it. He was also in a relationship with a man where you couldn't immediately tell who the dominant one was. And we've talked about that in our first episode about Achilles and Patroclus. But at war, well, things are different as we're about to see. This dominant submissive binary just starting to be built in classical Greece might have been built on older paradigms, but it might have been newer. And it also may have been more at play when people weren't at war. Because when you're at war, Things are different. Ultimately, masculinity in the Iliad at war was less about who was penetrating whom and more about what you could take for yourself. The men who earn the most respect are the ones who are able to slaughter and pillage and plunder. Jenny and I are calling this smash and grab masculinity because that's what it is. Ultimately, that's how Achilles proved his manhood during the 10-year Trojan War. It turned out he was really good at this. By the time the epic starts, almost at the very end of the actual war, 
Achilles has established his manhood in this area, but he still had some traits that were coded feminine. People still remember that story about his time as a dancing girl, and he never stopped feeling like he had to prove himself. And as Achilles continued to prove himself as the ultimate smash-and-grab masculine warrior, things shifted between him and Agamemnon. Because as Achilles found his footing as a smash-and-grab masculine hero, Agamemnon's hold on his own masculinity was slipping. Remember, the definition of masculinity we're working with here is not the impenetrable penetrator, it's smash-and-grab. By year 10 of the Iliad, Agamemnon was growing older. He wasn't the one out in the front lines doing all the smashing and grabbing, and he really was never that guy. He was always the person in the back, you know, gaming out the battle plan. Yeah, I would say he's not necessarily a great warrior, but he's a real pompous and commanding dude. Yeah, and no doubt as he grew older, the fact that he was not a great warrior only grew more true. I mean, let's be clear. We all face certain physical limitations as we grow older. But also, just as Achilles started this war with rumors swirling around him and people not sure what to make of him, so did Agamemnon. Agamemnon had sacrificed his daughter for a favorable win to get everybody to Troy. On the one hand, yes, this shows an extreme devotion to this war, but on the other hand, that is cold, even for an ancient Greek. People weren't quite sure they trusted Agamemnon after that. And, and he was not that likable to begin with. He just went a little bit too far. He went a little too metal, right? <laughs> it's like <laughs> that moment where you bite the head off a bat and you go, was this too far? I thought we were, no, we're not doing this? Okay. Anyway, people weren't quite sure they trusted Agamemnon after that. They didn't follow him willingly or look up to him. His hold on power was uneasy. So Agamemnon felt threatened by Achilles. He felt threatened by this guy who should have been unmanned after all that time he spent living as a girl in the court of the king of Skyros, and yet no matter how many rumors Agamemnon started, and, you know, this is just our own fan fiction, but we're assuming that he was stirring the pot here. I mean, I would be surprised if he wasn't. Right. Achilles managed to come away from everything with his hero reputation intact because he just was that good. Yeah, it's like, oh, I want to hate this dude, but he just keeps performing. And also, Agamemnon needed Achilles. Everyone knew the prophecies. They knew that they couldn't win the war without Achilles. And that meant that Agamemnon had to put up with him if he wanted to win this war. And he wanted to win this war in the worst way. Not because his brother was cuckolded and bringing back the wayward Helen would reinstall the gender balance. No, this is only partially about that. This is about empire building. This is about dominating. This is about a middle-aged man that needed to flex his muscles so he didn't feel irrelevant. In the Iliad, Agamemnon brought all the kings and princes of Greece together, not Menelaus. It is his might and his leadership that keeps these disparate warriors together. But this kind of leading and this kind of ruling isn't smash-and-grab masculinity, which earns the most prestige in this brutal warrior culture. The more smash-and-grab you are, the more esteem you're given. You get more standing and more honor by the amount of booty you're able to pillage, the amount of men you slaughter, and how well you perform on the battlefield. Agamemnon is not the warrior he once was. And quite often, he's not on the front lines. Occasionally, he is. I know there are some people who are going to be like, but what about this time? Occasionally, he is. But a lot of times, he's leading from the back. And that's where your general is a lot of the times, right? And that's part of the reason why he has so many problems with Achilles. Achilles is the ultimate smash-and-grab warrior. He can beat anyone on the battlefield. He brings in the best booty. 
and his soldiers are the elite shock force of the Greek army. I mean, this is a huge shift, right? So basically, like, the culture is changing over the period of 10 years as the war grinds on, smash and grab masculinity becomes ascendant, and other forms of, you know, leadership masculinity, impenetrable penetrator masculinity become less important because smash and grab is the big thing. That's what's keeping everybody afloat and alive here. That's what's giving people food. That's what's giving people the wealth they'll take back to their country after the war is over. Yeah, and and Agamemnon, as he gets older, he becomes less able to smash and grab himself. He never was quite the smash and grab guy anyhow. And people don't trust him anyway because they think he's just a little bit too hardcore even for them in a certain way. Well, because if you would kill your own daughter for a favorable wind. They've now been here for 10 years. This war did not end quickly. Like, maybe that wasn't the right choice. They didn't get rich and get to go home really fast. They didn't just, like, kick Troy's butt and get to go home. They're still sitting on this beach where they just fight this war of attrition every day. Yeah, so it's like, what was that wind even for? That was just a shitty wind to bring us to a shitty beach for 10 shitty years. So based on this binary, Achilles should be the king of kings and Agamemnon a lesser prince paying him tribute. Maybe. I mean, Achilles isn't really the big strategy guy, let's be clear. And I don't think he's got, like, bring everybody together leadership qualities. So I don't know. <laughs> um, no, he's he's divisive, you know? Look, here's the thing. He's the guy who, like, wants everyone to follow him and think he's the best. But, like, He's an outdoor cat. He's not going to be able to lead. And he's certainly not going to be able to keep people together because they're just going to keep getting pissed at him. And then he's going to sulk because he just can't get over it. I really think it's less about actually he wants to take on Agamemnon's role because I think he wouldn't be good at Agamemnon's role. It's not what he's good at. I think that really it's just about the way people see him and how much booty he gets to keep for himself. Well, I think it is about the way people see him. And unfortunately, you know, Agamemnon is is the guy in charge. And Achilles is like, but I bring in all the booty. I'm the best guy. I'm the best warrior. I should be the guy in charge. And everyone's like, yeah, no, you're right. But also, you know, you don't want this job. And he keeps saying, but I do want this job. He doesn't have that self-actualization to understand that, like, and I understand this from having worked for years in a corporate setting. Like, sometimes you think you want the role above you, and actually you want this other role in a different place. You know, if he had the the self-knowledge, he'd be like, do you know what? This is, this is where my skill set is. That might be the next rung here, but that is not what I want to do. But also, it's not even just like, oh, I need to move up the next rung in the corporate ladder. It's, it's also like, the guy on the next rung up on the corporate ladder is messing with me. And who the fuck is he? That's, I think that's even bigger. It's like if Agamemnon didn't challenge Achilles like he did, it wouldn't be as much of a problem. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just because they rubbed each other the wrong way. You know, Achilles isn't in a position where he can be like, I'm just going to take a new job in a different company. He has to work with this dude for 10 years. And every day is like kind of making him miserable. And the only thing that's bearable is like, everyone is like, Achilles is the best, you know, like. He can't stop being the best. Like, instead of being ground down by it, he's like, I'm just going to keep performing at a stellar level. So anyway, Achilles' problem is that he's Achilles, I think is a pretty a pretty apt way to sum, sum everything up about Achilles' life. <laughs> and while everybody has to bow to his prowess, he still doesn't quite fit in. I mean, this is, a, this is another thing about him. He lives between binaries. He has what would have been seen as a very queer relationship with Patroclus even then. He's not a god, but he's half divine and blessed by the gods. He's told over and over again that he's more than a human, but less than a god. He fits in somewhere in between. And the same is true for his gender. 
I think that, you know, thinking about the last episode we did, I don't know that I necessarily understood this then, but I think I've kind of come to this opinion. Like, I don't know, Jen, how you'd feel about this, but I kind of think that maybe Achilles really did enjoy living as a girl and maybe would identify in the feminine if the world would let him. But he's got everything pulling against it. I don't know. I think that there's a real argument here, you know, that he he is very fluid, right? He's not a human. He's not divine. He has gender fluidity. I think the difficulty is not putting our lens on top of him because like it's easy for me to say like from the 21st century, like, yeah, he's just gender fluid and he would have liked to wear a dress as much as, you know, the battle armor and he would have liked to have long hair as much as short hair or, you know, whatever, however he wanted to present. But putting that lens on it does take away some of what he would have been contending with, you know? Well, I think what he was contending with was that the world had certain expectations for him and those were very masculine expectations. He couldn't be feminine and be what he was, what the world demanded him to be, and like what the prophets demanded him to be. You know, that's my impression. I could be wrong. And like, I think that there are all kinds of ways you can interpret Achilles. And obviously, a lot of people straight washed Achilles and cis washed him. I think that's, you know, that's not the interpretation I prefer. If you want to find a gender fluid Achilles or even a trans Achilles, like that is there. You can find that. It's absolutely there. You can you can find it there. I'm not saying it's not there. And I, I want to be very clear. I think that, you know, for years and years and years and years, Achilles has been straight washed and absolutely cis washed and romanticized in ways that he should not be, especially if you're talking about a cis romance, right? Like he is a real dark character in a cis romance. He's kind of the villain. He's so complicated. And this is why he's one of my problematic faves. Like, I want to love him so much, but also he does things that just make me so angry. He lives between the idea of a hero and a villain to us as modern readers. And I think it's fair to say that he lived in between genders and he lived in between sexualities and he lived in between divine and human. He was really in between a lot of things. He was very liminal as a character. And I think that's what he struggled with as a person throughout the Iliad in a way. Like, I can see that in the text, you know, like it might just be my own fan fiction, but I don't think it is. I think you're right. I think he lived between a lot of things. And everything you see in his story is about the conflict of being in between two worlds, in between two things. And again, that's why for me, like, I just want to love him greatly because it's so relatable how he feels. It doesn't change the fact that a lot of the things he does are real dark, not just to like modern people, but to the time too. And we're going to talk about that. And we've talked about it before. Like Achilles, when he gets angry, just prays that all the Greek soldiers get killed. He has a real anger problem. I believe the rage of Achilles is a thing. It is. And I kind of feel like, you know, it's not that like we see him between a hero and a villain because of how he stood as like his gender or... No, that's not the stuff that makes him villainous. That's not the stuff that makes him villainous. It's actually the things he does. And he may do some of those things out of a frustration with his society that is not a great society to be in. Yeah, like, especially for somebody like him who doesn't fit into a lot of different perspective roles and people really want to pigeonhole you. The only time he's truly at home in his body and in his gender is when he's on the battlefield killing, pillaging, and plundering, which is what makes him dark, you know? Like, I'm not going to say it's not tied to his gender. I think it's tied to that smash-and-grab masculinity that things devolve to. Absolutely. Like, it's impossible to remove that from the discussion about him. And that's why we started off with the reasons to love Achilles, his relationship with Patroclus, 
And then we moved into sort of his childhood. And now we're at this place where he's a fully formed adult and he makes choices. I guess you could call it that. So anyway, Achilles in the Iliad and warriors in real life in the ancient world took booty from the people that they conquered. So this is another really important aspect of this story that we're going to have to do a deep dive on. But we're going to have to do it next week. In the meantime, catch up with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And check out our Patreon. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl where you can chat with us and get extra episodes and bonus content. And this week, we've got some new members to thank. So we'd like to thank... Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Dara Slobodianik. Colleen Wendt. And Ashley Kendrick. Thank you so much. And as a thank you to all the lovely people who have left us five-star reviews recently, we're going to start reading one out at the end of the podcast. Because we want to incentivize some of you out there to leave us some more love on whatever platform you listen to us on. Yeah, we're shameless. It really does help us. um, So we're hoping this will encourage some more of you to leave us some love. So do you want to read this week's five-star review, Jenny? My friends are sick of me ranting about ancient mystery cults, so I've replaced them with Jen. Just Jen. (laughs) Listening to this pod truly feels like sitting down for a drink with friends. They're super well-informed while also keeping the tone light with a healthy dose of smashing the patriarchy. I love all the pop culture references they make and the personality they bring to long-dead figures you once thought were boring. It's everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We will see you all next week. We will. Thank you so much for listening.